Well, a good few uh, years ago, we had the opportunity to uh, welcome two exchange students into our home for the summer. We were really looking at it as a missional opportunity uh, for our family, an educational opportunity for our kids. And so uh, we had these two that would make the journey to Tallahassee to come and uh, stay with us. Now, they had a daily program that they were to participate in, uh, but outside of that time, They were to simply just live life within our family. And so it wasn't too long after we established a relationship with them that they started to ask questions. Questions emerged about kind of our family and our faith and religion, kind of how we did life, some of the practices of our family. And they started to come to church with us. They got engaged in student ministry here And it was later one evening that I was sitting down with these two young men when this question was asked, who is this God you speak of? Now, (laughs) I'm not too often at a loss for words, especially when it comes to faith, but it was one of those moments because I've had all kinds of questions that come in evangelism with, well, who is Jesus and how do we know we can believe about Jesus? But now, how do you frame out in simple English, mind you, who the creator God of the universe is, with one of the students not having any concept of a God whatsoever. He was from Russia, and while he wouldn't have called himself an atheist, he just grew up devoid of any understanding whatsoever that there could be a God, that there was a God Now, our other teenager was a young man from France who grew up an Orthodox Jew, and he was very interested and engaged in this uh, conversation. Now, uh, needless to say, I couldn't in that moment give an exhaustive view of of who God is that very night. But over the course of uh, the summer, we had many conversations about who is this God you speak of? Who is he? What a great question. It was a question asked of some uh, other people, and I'd love for you to have an opportunity to see what they had to say, so take a look. In just a moment. (laughs) Hey, if not, we can work without it for sure. That's my cue. We'll work without it. No worries. All right. (laughs) Anyhow, I can give you a recap. Basically, a man on the street video where they asked numerous people, uh, is there a a God? And and the question uh, was interesting. The answer is probably even more interesting as people tried to just give their feedback. Well, what do you think about God? And is there actually a God? Now, after being raised in a Southern Baptist home and later becoming a Hollywood celebrity, Britney Spears, just earlier this week, says she no longer believes in God. And I quote, 
God would not allow that to happen to me if God existed. I don't believe in God anymore because the way my children and family have treated me. There's nothing to believe in anymore. Some of you in here this morning may feel very similarly. Like, I I just don't know what to believe in. Some of you may have doubts. Is there really a God? Could there be? Some of you have believed at one point in your life, but maybe the older that you have, have grown, you're not so sure. Maybe for some of you, even the painful experiences that you've lived in this life have caused you not only to question, but even turn your back on God. Others would say, you, you believe, but, but when you're, if you were asked to put into words, what do you believe about God? You would have a difficult time putting it into words. Others of you in here are absolutely certain about what you believe in God, not only because of your experience with Him, but your knowledge of Him through His Word. Now, I would tell you this morning, what you believe about God certainly matters. We call that theology. But I would also say to you, what God says about Himself matters even more. And I want to promise you this morning from Acts 17, 27, you've got a God that desires that you would know him and find him. He says that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him, yet he is actually not far from each one of us. And that is my great desire for you as well this morning, that you would see and know God, the one true living God. According to a survey done just recently uh, by Pew Research, an estimated uh, 81% of Americans express a belief in God when asked the simple question, do you believe in God? Yet that same 81% quickly drops to 56% when the follow-up question is, do you believe in the God described in the Bible? Now, deep in our hearts... All of us want to, to, to long and, and kind of know there's got to be something more to life than this. There's got to be some form of a higher being. There's got to be a God. Why? Because we're worshipers at our very core. And so culture offers all kinds of thoughts about God that range from the, the big guy in the sky to the wizard behind the curtain or the God that's holding lightning bolts in his hands just ready to to relinquish them on anybody that displeases him or doesn't do what he wants them uh, to do. So faith family, I would say, I think it's safe today to say we all need to understand what we believe and who we believe in. And that's why we launched this series on the Apostles' Creed this last week. Now, the Apostles' Creed is really the oldest summary of biblical doctrine that the church has. For nearly 2,000 years now, the Apostles' Creed has been used in in churches throughout the world to articulate what it is that we believe. Now, I want you to know it's important that you understand the Apostles' Creed was intended to be a summary of beliefs, not a comprehensive statement of faith. It's important to understand that the, the creed has been rightly used to identify believers, to correct error, to theologically form uh, the people of God. But I want you to know in this series, we are not preaching the creed. We're preaching the Word of God. 
Uh, think about the, the sun and the moon with me. The, the sun has the light, but the moon takes that light and what? It reflects it down uh, towards us. That's what the creed does for us. It, it simply points us to the light, to the one true God given to us in his word, the Bible. And so, for, for us as Christ followers, the, the creed really serves as a fundamental uh, view of Christian teachings found in our primary source, the Bible. The, the creed cannot replace Scripture. It cannot overpower Scripture because it comes from Scripture. The great English uh, theologian and pastor J.I. Packer calls the creed a declaration of the basics of the Christian message. It's not as if the creed says, this is everything you ever need to know in your walk with Christ, but it does say, this is the minimum you need to affirm to walk with Christ at all. So last week, Pastor Davis got got us started with this phrase, I believe, right? And we see that it's such an important phrase to say, I believe and not I know. And really more than I believe, we're saying we believe corporately, Because as a faith family, we exist in community. What we believe unites us. What we believe together brings clarity and and focus. But we all know just because we know a lot of things doesn't mean we always act on those things that we know. And even just because we believe a lot of things doesn't mean that we always put what we believe into uh, action. And so when we confess together, I believe, we're not only believing with our minds, but we're confessing, we're believing with our our hearts in such a way that we order our lives differently based on what we know and what we believe. Now, our section of the creed this morning is, I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And so we want to see and know God this morning. And we're going to do that by looking at an encounter that Moses had with God. It's in Exodus 3. If you're willing and able, I invite you to stand with me in honor of God's word this morning. Exodus chapter 3, and we'll start in the first verse. Now Moses was keeping flock of uh, his father-in-law Jethro, the priest of Midian. And he led his flock to the west side of the wilderness, and he came to Oreb, the mountain of God. And the angel of the Lord appeared to him in a flame of fire out of the midst of a bush. He looked, and behold, the bush was burning, yet it was not consumed. And Moses said, I will turn aside to see this great sight, why the bush is not burned. When the Lord saw that he turned aside to see, God called to him out of the bush, Moses, Moses. And he said, Here am I. Then he said, Do not come near. Take your sandals off your feet, for the place you are standing is holy ground. And he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face, for he was afraid to look at God. Dropping down to verse 13, then Moses said to God, if I come to the people of Israel and say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. And he said, say this to the people of Israel, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, say this to the people of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever. And thus I'm to be remembered throughout all generations. 
So Almighty God, maker of heaven and earth, we pray to you right now, asking that you, much like you showed up to Moses, would show up for us this morning in your power. As we open your word, God, we desire to see no one else but you. And in better understanding what we believe, want to so order our lives around who you are and the impact that you have made on not only our lives individually, but on this world. And so, Father God, we're going to ask you to do what only you can do in these moments, that you would open our eyes to see spiritual truths, that you would draw hearts who are far from you near to you this morning. We pray this in the powerful name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated. Now, I'd say it's vitally important this morning that when we say, I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, that we understand we are talking about the one true living creator God of the universe as he is revealed to us in Scripture. Now, we believe and worship one God, meaning we are monotheistic that exists in three persons, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. We know that as the Trinity. We'll explore the Father today, and then later in this series, most certainly look at Jesus and uh, the Holy Spirit. So to answer the question of who is God, I think it would be safe to say that God's purpose in this meeting with Moses was to reveal, as he had never done before, who he was through the context of his personal name, Yahweh. Now, Yahweh is the most common and arguably the most important name for God in the Old Testament It's a name that even in our English translations that we have in front of us never really gets translated. Because whenever you see in your Bible uh, the word Lord, L-O-R-D, in all capital letters, you, you know that this, Yahweh, is the name behind it. In fact, the Jews came to regard the name Yahweh with such fear and awe and reverence they would never speak it out loud out of fear that they would pronounce it wrongly or inadvertently take his name in vain. And so whenever they came to this name in their reading, they would pronounce the word Adonai, which means my Lord instead. Yet God says to us, Yahweh, which literally means, as he explained for us, I am who I am. Now, Yahweh occurs some 6,000 times in the Old Testament. That's three times more often than the more common name, Adonai or Elohim, which is only down in the 2000s. And and what this really shows us is that God does not want to just be a generic deity. He has a name that he reveals to us, and he wants to be known by us. It's a God who has come to us, a specific person with a name that carries his unique character and mission. And so we want to understand God this morning. That's his desire for us as his people, that we would know him and love him. And so let's dive in. First thing we see this morning is God is entirely perfect. Psalm 18.30 tells us this God, his way is perfect. The word of the Lord proves true. He's a shield for all those who take refuge in him. So not just here in the Psalms, but throughout many places in Scripture, we see that God and his works are always perfect. 
God's perfection and, and greatness is even a, a theme throughout the book of Hebrews. And, and the idea behind this greatness, this weightiness to God, is that of a perfect being. Well, one who uh, a greater being cannot even be conceived of. And this greatness is not in his size or his weight, but the entirety of his very essence So he himself is the greatest power and knowledge of justice and love and wisdom and on and on. But if we can be really honest this morning, this idea of God being entirely perfect, it can kind of rub us the wrong way, can't it? Because if God is entirely perfect, then he's got some explaining to do about things that have happened in my life or things that have happened in this world over the course of human history. If God is entirely perfect, how do I make sense of fill in the blank, whatever that may be in your life, in your story that's happened? Because in our minds, God can't be good and perfect and allow that to happen. But the problem is really one of perspective, isn't it? How can I, with my limited, finite, and even sinful mind, Make sense of things that only God knows and understands with his limitless, entirely perfect nature. Psalm 113 asks a great question. Who is like the Lord our God, who is seated on high, who who looks far down upon uh, the heavens and the earth? A God that is so much higher, who thinks higher and lives higher and knows are so much more perfectly than our minds could ever comprehend. The catechism is a great tool. It's been used throughout church history to help God's people learn and remember essential doctrinal truths. And so we can look to the Westminster Confession of Faith to understand and answer this question. It's number seven, who is God? And the answer, God is a spirit in and of himself infinite in being, glory, blessedness, and perfection all-sufficient, eternal, unchangeable, incomprehensible, everywhere present, almighty, knowing all things, most wise, most holy, most just, most merciful and gracious, long-suffering, and abundant in goodness and truth. We could spend the rest of our time this morning just trying to dwell on these things, these attributes, the, the knowledge of who our God is as he has revealed himself to us. But we have to understand something about our hearts We can read and and know that, but our our default is we want a God in our image and likeness. We we want a God that we can kind of form and fashion to be what we want him to be for us. We want to craft our own God. This has been the primary problem of people throughout human history. This is why the prophets spent the majority of their time preaching and and rebuking and and trying to help the people form uh, and fashion uh, a God not the way that they wanted it, but to understand the God as he revealed himself to them in Scripture. But not much has changed from the time of the prophets, has it? Don't you find yourself doing the same I don't really like that about God. I'd kind of scrub that out. I don't, I don't like that either. I'd erase that out. See, we, we excuse and neglect things about God that he's revealed to us about himself because honestly, we just don't like it. But see, to know God in all of his perfection continually confronts the reality of our own sin and our own brokenness 
and our own imperfection, and that's why we don't like it. The second thing we see this morning is God is eternally powerful. We see this in a verse like 1 Chronicles 29, 11. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the victory and the majesty for all that is in the heavens and the earth is yours. Yours is the kingdom, O Lord, and you are exalted as head above all. In our Exodus passage, what did we see? We saw Moses encountering God as fire. It was burning, yet it wasn't consuming a bush. But, but here the fire was incredibly unique, wasn't it? Not only did the fire not consume the bush, but the fire didn't have anything that it needed in order to get it started, nor did it have anything that it needed to keep it going. It was completely powerful on its own. It wasn't dependent on anything. And we don't know anything in the world like that. And that's the point. That's God. He is eternally powerful. But you can see that, that Moses is a bit confused here in his encounter with God, particularly about his name. And so he presses for some clarity when God says that I'm Yahweh. Moses says, well, here I'm supposed to go and I'm going to talk to these people and I'm supposed to tell them about who you are and who sent me. What am I supposed to say? Like, like you've told me, but... But what do I really say, right? And again, this is where the translations of this verse struggle because uh, Moses is basically telling them, tell them I am has sent you. Basically, we have the Hebrew verb here for to be. And God says, that verb, that's my name. <laughs> tell them I am has uh, sent you. Well, this probably wasn't the clarity that Moses was hoping for, right? Right? Basically, God is saying to Moses, being itself is the one who's sending you. And Moses is like, oh, okay, thank you. <laughs> so very helpful now that I can wrap my mind around that, right? But, but God is saying, this is his way of saying, I have no beginning and I have no end. I depend on nothing for my existence. I am entirely perfect and I am eternally powerful. But again, we see our challenge is how do we understand a limitless God with our limited minds? How do we wrap our minds around the infinite when it comes to power when our minds are incredibly finite? But this is where, faith family, we come to God's word and we trust who God is and what he has said about himself. And the absolute and eternal power of God, I would argue, should evoke a response from us. It did for Moses as he takes off his sandals in reverence. Do you know that when we encounter God and when we come into his presence that we too are on holy ground? Not just because this building is called the church, but because God's presence is here among us. As you meet with him in the mornings and as you spend time in his word that you are on holy ground as you engage with a holy God. Remember Isaiah in chapter 6 where he has uh, this vision and he sees the Lord uh, seated on this throne in his power and his majesty and his might and these angelic beings crying out in a thunderous voice, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. And what's Isaiah's response? He falls to the ground in worship of this great and majestic and powerful God. 
Now, we've got to embrace the reality that, that God has hardwired all human beings for all. There's a quest inside each one of us to be captivated by awe, to be amazed, to live in wonder, to have something that is so amazing and so awesome and, and so compelling that we want to live for it. We want to give our very lives to it, that we'd be so moved that we would make great sacrifices for it. It would be the first thing that gets us up in the morning. It would be the last thing on our minds when our heads hit the pillow. This is all of humanity. But what happens in our sin is that our awe of God is replaced by awe of other things. Most certainly, really, awe of ourselves, right? We're a people that are consumed with ourselves, but remember what Paul wrote to the Corinthians, 2 Corinthians 5, Jesus came that those who would live would no longer live for themselves. You could argue that really any growth for a Christ follower is really growth into growing into the awe of God, of seeing him for who he really is, of being captivated by who he is, that, that his being dominates me more and more, the awe of God, his power, his wonder, my attachment to him by grace should captivate our lives. Have you experienced that? Have you experienced the awe of God? But when was the last time your heart was so moved and stirred in awe of God that it led you to worship that would give your very life to Him? The third thing we see this morning is that God is extremely personal. Well, we've confessed that we believe in Almighty God. We've seen His power and His perfection. But now we want to see Him as our Maker and our Father because in those titles and attributes, we see that, that God isn't this distant, far-off God, but he's an extremely personal God. The God of the universe comes to us. He knows us. We didn't reach out to him. He reached out to us. J.I. Packer, again, says this so well in Knowing God. He says, what matters supremely, therefore, is not in the last analysis, the fact that I know God, but the larger fact which underlies it, the fact that he knows me. I'm graven on the palm of his hands. I'm never out of his mind. All my knowledge of him depends on his sustained initiative in knowing me. I know him because he first knew me and continues to know me. He knows me as a friend, one who loves me. There's no moment when his eye is off me or his attention distracted from me, and no moment, therefore, when his care falters. This is momentous knowledge. There is unspeakable comfort, the sort of comfort that energizes, be it said, not enervates, in knowing that God is constantly taking knowledge of me in love and watching over me for my good. There's tremendous relief in knowing that his love to me is utterly realistic based on at every point on prior knowledge of the worst about me so that no discovery can now disillusion him about me in the way that I am so often disillusioned about myself and quench his determination to bless me. Again, God's encounter with Moses there as he says, take off your sandals because you're on holy ground. He, he invites Moses in. God showed up as fire. We know there's power to fire, 
Fire's incredibly dangerous, can even kill. And so Moses rightly respects the fire. He even hesitates to draw in, to come close to God. But God's incredibly personal. He speaks Moses' name. He says, you can come near. You can stand here in my presence. But this same fire that can also uh, take life also gives life. The same fire that can burn us also provides light to our eyes and warmth to our skin, which tells us again that God is most certainly incredibly powerful, but also amazingly personal, which means we can't just know about God in our heads. We've got to experience him in our hearts. We've got to have a life-changing encounter with him. Now, when we're talking about God as a personal God, as a creating God, as God uh, the maker, we want to make sure that we don't land into deism, right? Uh, That God is this God that created everything. He got it all going, and now he's just kind of taking a back seat, and he's just sitting, and he's watching it all play out. That's not the God of the Bible. That's not what we're confessing when we say, I believe in God the Father, the maker of heaven and earth. We're saying that we recognize that God is the maker who has certainly spun everything we see and know into existence and even what we don't see and know. By his very words in ex nihilo, out of nothing, he has created everything that we see and understand. But God's involvement as a maker, remember in the Genesis account? His involvement as a creator is a very personal God. Remember, of all the ways he could create, he speaks. He allows us to hear his voice. He's a speaking God who brings everything to life by his very words. But then when it comes to the the prized jewel of his creation, humankind, what does he do? He, He changes the pattern of speaking and he kneels down to the earth. And with his very hands, he fashions and forms mankind out of the ground. And then in an amazingly personal and intimate moment, breathes his very life into Adam's lungs, giving Adam life. Our creator God is a personal God. That very same maker would what? Come and walk with Adam in the very cool of the day there in the garden. Our maker is personal, but that's not where his making and creating stopped. He continues to create and and make things new, particularly our hearts, as 2 Corinthians reminds us that if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. Behold, the old things are passing away, and what? He is creating. He's making all things new. Our hearts. He's continuing to be personal with us. And not only is he making and creating us, but he also comes to us as Father, Even in the very prayer that Jesus models for us to pray in Matthew 6, we're taught to pray what? Our Father who art in heaven. Our personal God not only comes to us as a maker, a creator, but he comes to us as a a, a father. And of all of God's names, Father is his favorite. We know he loves this name most because it's the one he used the most While on earth, Jesus called God the Father over 200 times. God loves to be called Father. And Father, or in the original language, Abba, it's an everyday word. 
It's a family-oriented word. The equivalent for us would be papa or, or daddy. It's right for you to call God your maker because he certainly is. It's appropriate for you to call him your king and sovereign and Lord. He is that. But if you want to touch God's heart, call him by the name he loves to hear. Call him Father. One of the great joys of my life is being father to a house full of kiddos. It just brings me absolute joy to be known and and kind of loved as father. And while I know my love can't compare for my kids like my heavenly father's love for them, man, it's my goal to love them like the father loves them to help them just get a glimpse, if they could, of the Father. One of my favorite things to hear is, Daddy, which now as my kids are getting older is more like, hey. (laughs) But still, maybe, maybe I just have that hope. Daddy, Daddy's home. Oh, you're home? It happens, right? But what a great name to be known by. What a great name to know our Father by. You have an Abba Father, who's a perfect Father, one that when you wander away, He seeks you and finds you. And when He finds us, He lowers Himself to our level. He bends down to wipe away your tears. He gets close to your face to give you a word of correction. He picks us up when when we fall down, and He always leads us home. You have an Abba Father. Now, honestly, one of the great hurdles for most of us is this idea of embracing God as our Father. Because we all project onto God our Father what we've experienced here from our earthly fathers. And some of us had amazing earthly fathers, but there is no perfect earthly father. But then there's others of you who can't even fathom what we sang about that God could be a good, good father because you didn't experience anything remotely good. In fact, your experience was marked by pain and abandonment, abuse, or even unthinkable things at the hands of your father. But I'll tell you this morning, no matter your earthly father experience, I want you to know you've got a heavenly father who perfectly loves you and delights in you who sees you and knows you and is proud to call you a son or a daughter. You're the apple of his eye, Scripture tells us. You're his prized creation. Your name even written on his hands. And you know his ultimate goal? In having a relationship with God, uh, the Father, that you would so feel and know his love that you'd also Share his love. That in knowing God and seeing God, you as his son or daughter would actually start to look more like him. Remember later in Moses' life, he actually had a few more encounters with God face to face. And in those instances, remember when he comes back down uh, to his people, uh, the people couldn't even look at Moses because his face was so radiating the face of God. Moses encountered the living God and he began to radiate the light and the love of God. That's what Linda does. 
A few years ago, her story was chronicled in a San Francisco newspaper. She's a city bus driver, but her bus has become known as a place of blessing. She lets everyone who rides her bus know just how much she loves them. She learns their names. She calls them by name. Her regulars certainly uh, know that. Ivy is one of them. She's in her 80s. She will let any and every other bus pass by until Linda's bus shows up. Because Linda will get out and help Ivy get on the bus. Linda even takes Ivy grocery shopping once a month after her shift. Then there's Tanya, who Linda spotted as she was uh, driving. She could tell she was new in town and she was lost. It was getting close to Thanksgiving and Linda invited Tanya to her house to spend Thanksgiving with her and her family because she couldn't fathom her being alone. Linda's been named Operator of the Month several times over and has accumulated a, a file of fan mail that gets sent to headquarters. She may quite well be one of the most beloved bus drivers in all of San Francisco. Her passengers are known to take her to lunch on her break, bringing her potted plants and, and flowers, even offering her use of their vacation homes. Well, Linda was asked why she does what she does, and this was her reply. Helping everybody's just a part of my nature. I start my day at 2.30 a.m., and I get down on my knees for 30 minutes to pray to God, because there's a lot to talk about with the Lord, she says. There it is. That's what happens when you get to know God. You get his face. You begin to do things like he would do things. As you spend time with God, you become more like God. God can and does use bus drivers. And he can use you.